It's time to get ready for Sunday. Actually, it's past time to get ready for Sunday. I'm late with this post again. My apologies. This is your weekly scripture study from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I am Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi. Here's a quiz for you. If last week was the 19th Sunday in Ordinary Time, and next week is the 21st Sunday in Ordinary Time, what would we expect this week to be? If you said the solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, you're absolutely right. You see, on August 15th of every year, for more than a thousand years, pretty much every Roman Catholic Church on the planet has celebrated the solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Her Assumption, Assumption means taking to oneself, as in God taking her to God's self, body and soul into God's presence. This week will be a little different from what we normally do in this time. There will be some scripture study, but it will also be a discussion of one of the other major sources of Catholic and Orthodox understanding of God, tradition. It was in the ninth century that Pope Leo IV made the assumption a universal feast of the Church, although it had already been celebrated almost everywhere for many centuries before that. So, the readings for the regular Sunday Mass, the 20th Sunday in Ordinary Time, are set aside and we concentrate on Mary. This feast is a solemnity, the highest ranking of our feasts, so it bumps the regular Sunday reading. And for this week, I'm going to cheat a little on the usual pattern of examining the readings of the day. I'm just going to read the Gospel at the outset and trust you to remember it word for word. The first reading from the book of Revelation will show up later, and I'll skip the second reading and responsorial psalm entirely. That should leave enough time to discuss the two core readings and some of the tradition that this feast honors. If that is a disappointment for you, I would invite you to write your complaint on the back of a $100 bill and send it to the Corpus Christi Building Fund. Don't be shy. Use as many bills as you need. Get it all out. I'm just kidding. Kinda. Unless, of course, you feel moved to do that. In which case, thank you very much. So here then is a reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Mary set out and traveled to the hill country in haste, to a town of Judah, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the infant leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, cried out in a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how does it happen to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For at the moment the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the infant in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed are you who believed that what was spoken to you by the Lord would be fulfilled. And Mary said, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon his lowly servant. From this day all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm and has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel for he has remembered his promise of mercy the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children, forever. Mary remained with her about three months, and then returned to her home. The Gospel of the Lord Since the earliest communities of Jesus' followers, the Church has held his mother Mary in the highest state of veneration. Today she holds an especially important, even pivotal place in the theological understanding of Catholic, Orthodox, and Anglican churches. Some Christian denominations, however, have difficulty with our great level of enthusiasm for her. Chief among those are those that spring from the Reformation movements that began in the 16th century. The concept of sola scriptura, that is, the reliance on sacred scripture as the only authoritative source of God's self-revelation in the life of Jesus, plays a major part in that difficulty. Lutheran churches, although at the foundation of the Reform movement, do hold Mary in high esteem and hold much in common about her with Catholic and Orthodox teaching. Catholic and Orthodox Christians have always looked to the wisdom contained in the core traditions passed along through many generations of discipleship to fill in or expand what could be gleaned from Scripture alone. This is the case with much of what we hold to be true of Mary. A significant part of our understanding of her, of her role in salvation history, is not included in the Gospels at least not specifically included. In addition to this feast of the Assumption, there are three other solemnities honoring Mary during each liturgical year. The three are the Immaculate Conception, the Annunciation, and the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. Mother of God, Theotokos, God-bearer, was the first of many honorific titles the Church has given Mary over the centuries. Looking at the Assumption is our task today. Mary's Assumption, body and soul, into heaven at the end of her natural life is one of the teachings about which some of our Christian brothers and sisters find themselves skeptical. The earliest name for the feast was the Dormition of Mary. Eastern churches still use that name. Dormition, falling asleep. I like it. That terminology makes sense. When Jesus was called to attend the centurion's daughter, what did he say? She is not dead, she is asleep. St. Paul uses the term asleep in both 1 Corinthians and Galatians. Paul's use of the term makes sense and is clarified in 1 Corinthians when he speaks of grief at the death of another. He compares the grief of believers to the far more despondent grief of others who have no hope. 
For believers who are trustfully awaiting resurrection, the death of the body is to sleep with the full expectation of awakening again into the promised life of divine love. You've heard perhaps the phrase, sure and certain hope, in some prayers of the church. It always seemed like an oxymoron to me in my younger days, a contradiction in terms, until I began to understand that hoping for a Christian is not mere wishing, but is waiting in trust for God's promise to be kept, as all of them have been, always. Did Mary actually die or not, is a good question. Sometimes, in the West at least, there seems to be disagreement about that. One can get a sense of this by looking at the artistic representations of the Assumption. In the East, church art, icons, invariably depict Mary on her deathbed, surrounded by apostles and others. There she falls asleep, that is, her body dies in trusting expectation of resurrection which occurs very shortly thereafter. Western art has more of a tendency to depict Mary very much alive and quite glorified. She's often surrounded by cherubs, other saints, perhaps shown floating aloft toward the heavens. I have no great insight to offer about that. I just find it interesting, and I will admit I like the icons a lot better. Pope Pius XII declared the Assumption of Mary to be an article of faith, a dogma of the Church, on November 1st, 1950. Why did it take so long? I don't know. But in doing this, Pius was formally recognizing a core belief of the Church that goes back to the Apostles. Ancient Christians believed that Mary was born without sin, and remained sinless her entire life, they believed she was assumed directly into heaven and did not undergo corruption. But did she die or not? Let's look at the official language of Pope Pius XII's proclamation of the doctrine. The key words being, and I quote, The Immaculate Mother of God, the Ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heaven. Clear? No. The Church is very wise. My personal opinion is influenced by one particular argument. It can be reasoned that Mary's life is more intimately connected to Jesus than any other human being. We have no reason to believe that her pregnancy after the conception was other than fully human, that means, among other things, that she was contributing cells from her own body to the incarnation of Jesus. Mary followed Jesus in life, step for step, and if he went through death to his ultimate glorification, she also would follow him through death as well. Once the scriptures were produced, early theologians and other scholars began to look not only at what the New Testament had to say about Mary, they looked at what the Old Testament had to say about Mary in light of the New Testament in the Christian interpretation of the Old, and what the New Testament says in light of the Old. 
The terminology for such a study is typology. The church has looked at Jesus typologically in both Hebrew and Christian scriptures. As an example, we see Jesus as the new type of Adam, the new Adam, or Jesus as the new Moses. When we look at Mary typologically, we find a lot of scriptural foundation for our beliefs about Mary because her life is so radically intertwined with Jesus, we actually have to look at both persons, Mary and Jesus. First, let's start with Jesus as the new Adam. St. Paul was very specific in 1 Corinthians and in Romans that Jesus was the new Adam. Jesus came into the world to undo the damage from the fall and reconcile men and women once again to the Godhead. If we accept that Jesus is the new Adam, we have ample scriptural evidence to see Mary as the new Eve. Here's a quick summary from the book of Genesis. God created both Adam and Eve without sin. Before the fall, Eve is called woman. After the fall, she is named Eve, which means mother of the living. At the end of chapter 3 in Genesis, God rebuked the serpent, and as punishment for inducing Adam and Eve to sin, proclaimed, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He shall strike at your head, and you shall strike at his heel. Our church fathers have referred to this passage as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the first good news. That is to say that God's proclamation is that the fall of humanity into sinfulness would be set right, and the one to accomplish that redemption would come through the human race, the race that sin seeks to destroy. The ancient Jewish people understood this prophetic statement, this promise of God, to mean a couple of things. First, the serpent represented the devil, and second, at a point in time of God's choosing, God would send forth a Messiah born from a woman who would become the new Eve. Unlike the first Eve who succumbed to the serpent's temptation, the new Eve would not be tricked by the serpent, and likewise her son would ultimately conquer the serpent. The Genesis story tells us it was through Adam and Eve that sin and death entered our world. But this was not intended to be the end of the story. Again, in the third chapter of Genesis, God sets forth his plan to fix the mess we made. He would become one with us in our humanity. Jesus the Christ would redeem humanity. God's mercy is set in motion as he invites a young Jewish virgin, Mary, filled with the Holy Spirit, to conceive and bring forth that Messiah. After the conception, again, we have no reason to believe that the rest of her pregnancy was anything other than fully human. God's fully human nature comes about honestly, growing within Mary, fed by nutrients provided through her body, growing toward birth, held safe in a placenta that, science tells us, is a combination of cells from both bodies. Therefore, just as the woman called Eve participated in the first sin, a woman, Mary, 
participates from the very outset in the redemptive work of Jesus. Let's look at some easy parallels between the Old Testament and the New Testament, highlighting Mary as the new Eve. Eve, in Genesis, is called woman 11 times. In the Gospel of John, Mary also is called woman at Cana and at the crucifixion, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the end. Eve invites Adam to participate in the first sin, the fall. Mary, in John's Gospel, invites Jesus to perform his first sign, that of the changing water into wine at Cana. Eve was with Adam at the fall. Mary was with Jesus at the crucifixion, which, to use a, a terribly secular term, was the antidote to the fall. Eve becomes mother of all the living. Mary becomes mother of the beloved disciple and ultimately of all the church, the new embodiment of God's Christ. In another departure from the usual, the first reading in today's Mass does not come from Hebrew Scripture. Rather, it comes from the book of Revelation. As you listen to it, see if you can spot the Proto-Evangelium, God's promise from Genesis. Let's look further at Mary as the new Eve, present and vital for salvation even until the end of days. A reading from the book of Revelation. God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant could be seen in the temple. A great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and wailed aloud in pain as she labored to give birth. Then another sign appeared in the sky. It was a huge red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven diadems. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in the sky and hurled them down to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman about to give birth, to devour her child when she gave birth. She gave birth to a son, a male child, destined to rule all the nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and his throne. The woman herself fled into the desert, where she had a place prepared by God. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have salvation and power come, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his anointed one. The Word of the Lord. Three characters in this Revelation passage. Three easy parallels. The serpent is the devil, the evil one. The child, the Messiah. The woman, the mother of the Messiah, an individual who can only be Mary. This passage depicts Mary as the woman from Genesis chapter 3, whose son would conquer the devil. There are several inherent implications for Mary as the new Eve, which serve as a foundation for our Catholic beliefs about Mary. Probably most important is that Mary was born without being touched by sin and kept free from sin her entire life. 
There are four people in the Bible created without sin. The archetypal Adam and Eve, and then the new Adam and Eve, Mary and Jesus. Again, typologically, Mary is seen as the new Ark of the Covenant. Aside from today's feast, we are in the middle of the Bread of Life discourse in John's Gospel. There, Jesus describes himself as the new manna come down from heaven. In Exodus, God provided heavenly food to sustain his people for 40 years to help them move from slavery to the promised land. In John chapter 6, Jesus told his fellow Jews that he is the new bread come down from heaven, which inaugurates a new exodus, this one from sin and death, and toward eternal life. In Exodus, the ancient Jews carried the Ark of the Covenant with them everywhere. It was the dwelling place of God on earth. God accompanied his people during the desert wanderings in the form of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. According to specific instructions from God, the Jewish people built a special tent, a tabernacle specifically for the Ark, and God's presence in the form of a cloud would cover this tent. In the book of Exodus, we find language about the Ark that helps us appreciate Mary's identity in the New Testament, her identity as the new Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was the dwelling place of God on earth. The Ark was a sacred container. It was a box made of acacia wood. The box was covered in pure gold. The Israelites placed three items inside the Ark. First, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Second, a jar containing manna. And third, Aaron's staff that was used to lead the Israelites, which would bud and sprout while inside the ark. Fourth, the ark was described as holy and made of incorruptible wood. Acacia wood is very hard, durable wood. It's resistant to rotting. Fifth, when the ark was taken out of the tabernacle, it was covered in a blue cloth. And finally, once the ark had been completed according to God's instructions, God's presence in the form of the Shekinah cloud comes down from heaven and fills the tent containing the ark. God is visibly present with his people. It's easy enough for a Christian to see some obvious parallels to Mary. Mary was the first dwelling place of God in Jesus, the incarnation. A far more intimate ark Mary carried this being within her own body, contributed cells of her own body to the growth and ultimate birth of Jesus. The three items in the ark represent Jesus. The tablet of the Ten Commandments, Jesus is the Word made flesh. The jar of manna, Jesus tells us, I am the bread of life. I am the new manna. Aaron's staff, representing the lineage of the great Levite priests, Jesus as the new high priest. And finally, who is it that in just about every painting or statue depicting her is wearing a blue garment? God's presence with his people, the ark in Hebrew scripture, continued all through the centuries into King David's time. 
King David conquered the Canaanite city that would become Jerusalem around 1010 BC. He chose Mount Ararat as the site for his great temple, the place to be a permanent home for the Ark in Jerusalem. The temple was completed in 957 BC during the reign of David's son Solomon. The act of bringing the well-traveled Ark to Jerusalem offers up more typological evidence about Mary. Regarding the Ark, David, Scripture tells us, arose and went to the hill country. Mary arose and went to the hill country of Judah to visit her cousin Elizabeth. David admits his unworthiness to receive the Ark by exclaiming, How can the Ark of the Lord come to me. Elizabeth proclaims her unworthiness to receive Mary by exclaiming, And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? David leaped before the ark as it was brought in with shouting. John leapt in Elizabeth's womb at the sound of Mary's voice, and Elizabeth cried with a loud shout. The ark remained in the hill country for three months. Mary remained in the hill country in Elizabeth's house for three months. In the book of Revelation, John writes of his vision of heaven. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. John did not see the ark on Mount Nebo. He saw it in heaven and described it as a woman clothed with the sun. That's Mary. I'm being encouraged to get to the assumption. Okay, Jesus, the new Moses, leads God's people in a new exodus from slavery to sin and death into a new promised land and a share of the eternal divine life with him. The Ark of the Covenant was a representation of God's presence with his people. Jesus is the new enfleshed presence of God with his people. With Mary as the new Ark, not mere wood and metal, but fully and immaculately human, it is most consistent and reasonable that the new Ark is both Mary's body and soul. After all, it was Mary's body that carried and nourished the growth of Jesus. Her body is the new, incorruptible ark and follows Jesus through death to heavenly glory. That's about enough for today. I hope you're able to celebrate the Eucharist this weekend, either in person or, if you have to, online. I pray that you are well. Please keep yourself safe spiritually and physically. And may God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.